Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. There's an old proverb that I'm sure you've heard before. No man is a hero to his valet. Steve Schmidt was not exactly John McCain's valet, but he was the political equivalent, his closest advisor. And John McCain was Steve's hero. Everything about him that was big was big. Everything that was heroic was heroic. John McCain, who died in 2018, was one of the most celebrated politicians in modern American history. And Steve was the man by his side through the epic 2008 presidential campaign. He was not a man of moderation um, at all. There were no pastels in there. It's a story of disillusionment and regret. Steve played a role in elevating Sarah Palin to the national stage when John McCain picked her as his running mate. And over time, Steve came to see Palin and the followers she attracted as the precursor to Donald Trump and his movement, which, if you know anything about Steve these days, has been the political force he spent the last seven years fighting against. As much as Steve has spoken out against Palinism and what he believes she represents, he didn't challenge the legend of John McCain, the person who actually picked her. But privately, over the course of the 2008 campaign, he had grown to believe that the gap between the myth of John McCain and the reality of John McCain was so wide that he could actually no longer support McCain for president. By November that same year, he had lost his faith in his former hero. Steve told me something he's never revealed before. He didn't vote for John McCain in 2008. Why not? Well, there were a lot of reasons. Palin, the stench of corruption that he believed had attached itself to some of McCain's top advisors, and ultimately to McCain himself. But the main reason that Steve lost his faith is that Steve says he knew a secret about John McCain, one that he spent 14 years keeping to himself until this week. At the end of the day, John McCain seduced a lot of people. He seduced me, he seduced the National Press Corps, he seduced America. This is Playbook Deep Dive. I'm Ryan Lizza. On his new substack, The Warning, Steve published his first article. It's called No Books, No Money, Just the Truth. Have there been any moments of regret since you wrote this? Moments of sadness. How come? Um, but no moments of regret. Not at all. Sadness, why? This is the greatest disillusioning experience of my life, times 10, exponent of 47 trillion. You know, I don't, this, this guy was a hero of mine. You know, I, all the Obama people, he never broke their hearts um, the way that John McCain did to his people, right? You know, the, 
the only conceivable conclusion uh, that that you could get to after watching his conduct in this campaign was he's completely unfit to be president. Uh, truth is, I didn't vote for him either. The you didn't vote for John McCain? No. Um, Have you ever told anyone that? No. Um, the only person who knows that's Nicole. Who'd you vote for? I didn't vote. Left it. I left it. I left it. I left it blank. And and to. But you were. But this was a conscious decision. To, yeah, yeah, of course. To, you, you, it of wasn't course. like you just missed. It, it you couldn't a, bring yourself in November of two thousand eight to vote for John McCain. Absolutely. Absolutely, it, was, it would have been. You know the the it would have been every bit as crazy in that White House as as would have been the Trump campaign. Um, as the as the Trump administration was for sure the the recklessness the it was it was insanity, and at the at the end of it, um, the last month wanted to try to finish this race with dignity, um, and and kind of get on with life. And you know John John McCain went back to the Senate. John McCain did a lot of great things. He did a lot of heroic things, right? And he did some bad things, and he he absolutely betrayed me, um, and. You know, I, I carried it for a long time, and, you know, it's just so stupid. Let me just, so just, the, the, the piece comes out on February 21st, 2008. And so by that point, you're, the campaign is dealing with it for what, weeks, months? Months, months. The story, I'm going to read part of it. Early in Senator John McCain's first run for the White House eight years ago, waves of anxiety swept through his small circle of advisors. A female lobbyist had been turning up with him at fundraisers visiting his office and accompanying him on a client's corporate jet. Convinced the relationship had become romantic, some of his top advisors intervened to protect the candidate from himself, instructing staff members to block the woman's access, privately warning her away, and repeatedly confronting him, several people involved in the campaign said on the condition of anonymity. When news organizations reported that Mr. McCain had written letters to government regulators on behalf of the lobbyist client, the former campaign associate said some aides feared for a time that attention would fall on her involvement. McCain, 71, then 71 when this was written, and the lobbyist both say they never had a romantic relationship. But to his advisors, even the appearance of a close bond with a lobbyist whose clients often had business before the Senate committee that Mr. McCain led threatened the story of redemption and rectitude that defined his political identity. Was there anything else you remember from that piece, Steve, that made it kind of, in your view, potentially deadly to the campaign? You know, my Washington years were for 99 to 2006, and I'd, I'd been in the White House <laughs> on a presidential campaign at the NRCC. I was, I was a campaign guy, not a K Street guy. And so, you know, at also, that McCain's point, whole identity was was about, you know, not being a Washington insider, right. campaign finance, anti-corruption, overcoming his role in the Keating Five. Yeah, absolutely. And every 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 time you turn around, you know, you're running into a lobbyist somewhere around around McCain and you're sitting there and you're saying, wow, you know, this is this is really bad. Right. Undermining the brand. Right. And I and I thought like at the end, you know, this was a comeback. Um, you know, as you were looking at the fall, a story about McCain being involved with the telecommunication lobbyist that, you know, he's doing special favors to would have ended the presidential campaign. So, you know, this was something that, you know, kind of constantly 
you kept apprised of, right? It, when you're running these campaigns, um, you know, you're very cognizant, very aware, you know, what is out there that can kill you, um, you know, very, very focused on it. So you're, you're evaluating all your threats and, you know, you know that they're working on this and you, you go out and you live your life, right? And that's, and that's what the fall was like. And it got more intense and more time consuming for me right, the closer it got to publication. And then once it got to publication, um, I was in charge. What did you believe about the veracity of what the Times reported? I thought it was a bullshit story. He said it was untrue to me 20, 20 times, at least. As a political consultant, you always, you know, there's, there's always, there are always scenes uh, in books and, and movies and, you know, obviously... Uh, there's always a moment where the candidate and the consultant have a kind of like, you know, face to face where the candidate is confronted with the pe- by the people who have to go out and speak on his behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, famous, some famous episodes with Bill Clinton and his advisors in the White House um, when he denied his affair with Lewinsky for, for as long as he could. Did you have that kind of moment with McCain about his relationship with this lobbyist? So, so this is a disaster for the New York Times, right? The, <laughs> the, the, um, the story blows up. It helps McCain. Uh, huge backlash to the story. And so a couple of weeks later, um, my recollection is that it's Ohio and we're in an atrium and it stood out because it actually looked good, right? Which was- And, and just-, just- just to remind people, it helped McCain because at that point, McCain still had a reputation as uh, as too moderate for a lot of conservatives. And so the whole kind of right wing of the Republican Party was skeptical of him. But the New York Times coming after him with what was regarded as maybe a slightly thinly sourced or at the very least anonymously sourced article about a relationship that... Um, galvanated the rights around McCain for one of the first times. Like people like Rush Limbaugh were suddenly, you know, McCainiacs in a way that they weren't before because they had this common enemy in the New York Times. And that's, and let me just say something too that's important in the context of this because the McCain campaign is the last confrontation with these people on the Republican side that's victorious without any accommodation. Because when the Limbaugh's and the Hannity's and all these people, you know, came at John McCain, they came at him hard. McCain made no accommodation. The official policy towards them on the 08 uh, McCain campaign was fuck off. You get in line, not us. So we're we're at this um, event in in Ohio is the recollection. and, And the place was in an atrium where it was filled with people. And so visually, it was kind of looked good, um, which was shocking for the McCain campaign, which looked like it was, um, you know, staged by drunken city council advancement, right? Like at that, at that <laughs> point in, in time. And, um, and we were backstage or, or on the side, and, he, and, he, and, he, and John was always fidgety, right? You know, nervous. You know, he had his lucky rabbit's foot, his, you know, his lucky pennies and all of that. And he, he just said backstage, he goes, boy, he goes, we're not going to get through this. We're not, we're not going to get through this. He said and that to like, you. But it was a typically pessimistic and, like, anxiety-ridden, you know, um, 
you know, comment. And I, I just said to him, get through what? The event? What's what's happening? Um, and he said, no, 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 this. I was like, what's this? And he's like, the story, the story. I'm like, the New York Times story? I'm like, the New York Times story's over, sir. It's over. He goes, uh, you know, I don't know, boy. I don't know. I said, it's, um, it backfired in the New York Times. I'm sure it was a terrible experience for you and Cindy, right? But politically, it helped. And, like, you know this about presidential campaigns. Like, it's a shitty business. And uh, he goes, no, boy, because I had a long relationship with her. And I just looked at him and I said, are you kidding me? I said, you go fuck yourself. And walked away and went back to California where I refused to speak to him for some period of time. And then got, you know, then got, you know, lured back, you know, into the into the thing. And that, you know, to me. Um, is when I became complicit in this and that lie became, became mine at that point. And that is the one time um, that anyone um, in public life um, has, asked, has, has put me in that position. Arnold Schwarzenegger did not put me in that position. Dick Cheney did not put me in that position. George Bush did not put me in that position. No one put that, me in that position except for John McCain, ever. I want to pause here to say we can't independently confirm what Steve is saying about the nature of John McCain's relationship with this lobbyist. And both McCain and the lobbyist denied having an affair, and they denied that the senator extended any improper favors to her clients. We reached out to the lobbyist and her lawyer and didn't receive a response. When you came back to the campaign, did he ever apologize or was there any kind of um, conversation about patching things up after that episode or was it kind of like left unsaid and untalked about because it was too difficult for him or or you I had a billionaire CEO asked me once to to meet him so we could go for a walk on the beach at dawn and share our vulnerabilities with each other. And I, and I thought it was the closest I've ever come to meeting a fucking Martian, right? You know, so John McCain was not that type of guy, right? And, I, and I'm much more comfortable with the John McCain type of guy, you know, in that sense, right? Talking about feelings and stuff. Like, he knew, he knew that I was pissed. He knew that I told him to go fuck himself, he called and, you know, all of his, you know, whatever. But, you know, we got to get on to the mission and the this and all that. And we moved on, moved on. This was not like a teenage relationship, right? Like where like we would look and have moments of good moments and bad moments as we came back to circle to this, right? I was, I was pissed, right? I knew what he did. He knew that I knew what he did. And, you know, we moved on from it. And I, I did say, I did say to him at the time, I said, is there any more stupid fucking shit I need to know about? You know, he said no, which of course that too was a lie, but a you know, story for a different day. What was a lie about? No, oh, I mean, listen, mean he, he's a, he, he was a reckless man. He was a reckless man. What led you to the point where 
you finally went public with all of this and an account of how two of the kind of uh, what you see as cancers on American democracy, the roots of, of Trumpism and the corruption of foreign lobbyists who are working for pro-Putin interests, meddling in American politics, all sort of being birthed in the 2008 McCain campaign, which frankly is not the popular conception of that campaign. And third thing is a real recasting of Senator McCain's mythology. You know, you say at the end of your, your article, I lost my faith in him a long time ago. Um, it's a lot. There's a lot to digest here. It's not just, a, you know, it's a, your own personal story, but it's really a story of the American politics in the last 14 years. But there was something very specific that prompted you to say, you know what, fuck it, I'm finally, I'm finally laying this all out there. I was, uh, I was alone on Saturday. I, I had just done a really good hike. Um, you live you live in Utah for people who don't know. Yeah. Very. And I, I was with my Bernese Mountain Dog and Black Lab and little little dog, and we were uh, just back from the hike. And you know, after fourteen years of Megan McCain's abuse, I read this thing about the about the book um, selling two hundred forty seven copies. And right, and I offered her new book, her memoir. Right, and um, I, I'm going to say something here that the that that for whatever reason, um, media executives and uh, people in Washington, between New York and Washington, don't understand, and um, their not understanding of it really warps the political coverage in the country. What we're talking about is a multi-billion-dollar industry that jams down the throats of the American people um, things they don't like, and and that's what that book was, right? What what it it, it the market in a country of three hundred thirty million people said something. Right. Which which is that. Why, why is this person on TV? Why, why is this person jammed down our throats? And in the in the product that people want is not that they feel held hostage by it. And so I commented on that. And of course, she predictably called me a pedophile. And once she called me a pedophile, that was the, um, you know, old magic code, I guess, to unlock all of this. Um, and. It was time for me to put down another man's burdens and sins. No man, no woman should carry another person's sins and burdens and lies. He's been dead for four years. It is outrageous that for 14 years, Cindy McCain has allowed this. It is outrageous. It is cruel. I didn't deserve it. My kids didn't deserve it. I really hope um, that I've heard the last from Megan McCain about any of this stuff. I remember a conversation we had over a year ago in 2021 where you kind of casually mentioned this story. And I remember thinking after I talked to you, like, holy shit, did Steve just tell me what I thought he told me? You know, and that was off the record. But I kind of got the sense that you were, you know, slowly kind of unfurling this and trying to get it out. You hadn't gone public then, but you were, 
you know, I've known you a long time. We met at that on, on that 2008 campaign, and I got the sense that you were working it out and thinking about going public. And we'll talk in a second about why you you finally went public. But I am I, am I right about that? That it was this long process, kind oh of oh my god, you know, yeah, slow was, boil. It was definitional. It's been definitional. I mean. What I said to my 16-year-old my called me, at my boy, after after all this, and I said, do you understand, right, how many years, how much damage, how many people? One lie. And I was saying to, you know, I told some of this story the other day. There's a, there's a very famous billionaire CEO, and he's having dinner there was a bunch of people at the dinner, and Spencer Zwick, who is Mitt Romney's uh, top guy, fifth son, is at the is at the dinner, and the guy asks him, you know, something about me, and um, you know, Spencer Spencer Zwick is goes to him, well, well, yeah, um, you know, it says a lot about a guy who's not invited to John McCain's funeral, and um, and that was me, that was my life, right, and that made life small for me. Right over over a long period of time, because every room you walk in, right, you feel that stink, right? What's wrong? What's wrong with this guy? Well, there was nothing wrong with me. Um, there was something wrong with the person who, two hours after the senator's death, leaked it to Politico, right? Who was um, and who was not invited to the funeral um, when a bunch of those people were all the people who cleaned up her father's messes. Um, who dealt with his recklessness and who carried his burdens and sins and lies, and in my case, uniquely so. So it was such a spectacular act of cruelty. And a year ago, I sent a letter to Cindy McCain asking for it to stop. And I said, I was going to ask, I know about this, and I, I didn't know if you were prepared to talk about this or not, but let me just set this up a little bit. All right. Yeah. A, a year ago, and we haven't you haven't said her name, but you're talking about Megan McCain, and you're talking about this long running fight that you guys have had in public, and this awful moment when I don't know the history of this this Steve, but I'm I'm trusting you here that she leaked the fact that you weren't invited to John McCain's funeral within hours of his death, and something that you hurt you enormously, right? Just um, back up a little bit before we get to this letter that you sent to Megan's mom, Cindy, last year. What's what's what? Just very quickly, what are the roots of the toxic relationship that you and Megan developed? Well, Megan McCain and I don't have a relationship, and we don't have a fight until this weekend. For 14 years, I've never responded to her, not a not a single time ever. Um, and I mean, I remember in 2008, I, I met Megan. I've known her for a long time, just full disclosure. And um, I met her on the bus with you. And when she and her a couple of colleagues were writing a, a blog in 2008 that got a lot of attention, um, and I think in her. You know, I think that she's written recently that you were kind of the uh, 
the grown-up on the campaign that told her she couldn't do certain things and you were constantly, you know, I, I don't know if that's, the, that, that yeah, some I of think, that seems like pretty well, minor, but it seemed like it escalated well beyond you just telling her no on, on the, on the campaign in the, in the ensuing years. Yeah. I mean, but, but without any additional, um, contact between us, um, so the bullying, the meanness, the cruelty, the attacks, I mean, for 14 years. And I think there's a lack of understanding um, by how many articles there are. It would astound people all over the world um, of Meghan McCain attacking me, right? Um, I, I, could, I could tweet them out right, for three weeks. The volume is amazing. Um, she's been given a license on national television, um, on all these books, everything else, to attack my character, my integrity non, nonstop um, for 14 years, right. and, I, and I never once responded. Now, I want to say something, because this is the, this is the answer to your question. Um, there are let three- me pause, Steve. I want to say I, I I've known Megan. I, I reached out to her. I texted her the other day to see if she, and she um, she said she didn't uh, she didn't want to engage and didn't want to respond and, yeah. and talk. Uh, so, so anyway, well, there there are three types of people in the world. Is how I would explain this, and so I want think about whether it's the McCain campaign, whether it's the Trump campaign, or whether it's Lord of the Flies, because these are all the same places. Right. Three types of people see this. First person looks at that and says, I'm going to jump in the pool. Second person looks at this. um, I call this a smart person and they walk away. Right. They walk away. Right. I'm the third type of person. The third type of person walks into it and says, what the fuck is going on here? Stop it. I was the first human being of the type three category that Meghan McCain ever met. And so for the price of telling her no, for 14 years, I was abused, attacked, is disloyal, stigmatized, and called a pedophile at the end. So, so last year, this 14 years of, you guys aren't even in communication, but you are watching her attack you from afar publicly. Um, and last year, this comes to a head. Tell us how it came to a head and what you did about it. About a year ago, Megan McCain uh, called me a pedophile, and she got a lawyer letter, right? Um, preserve records, thinking very seriously of suing you. And I sent a letter to her mother. And I laid out to her mom basically the story that is now public, it was a, you know, not, not everything in the letter is public, but, you know, that the, the fundamental elements are, and I, I just said, please make it stop. I don't want money from you. I don't want anything. The only person who's ever asked me to lie uh, is your husband. The only person who's compromised my integrity and honor is your husband. Um, and I want this to stop, this abuse to stop. Right. It was outrageous. Right. About the funeral. And, and listen, I didn't want to go to John McCain's funeral. I, I had made my peace with him. We had no unsettled business between us. Um, I said goodbye to John McCain. It was the humiliation that mattered. It wasn't the act. 
I didn't have an entitlement to go to John McCain's funeral. I did absolutely have an entitlement not to be humiliated by his family in Politico as if I was defective and disloyal and something that was wrong with me when, in fact, I was the one who was carrying the burden of all of his bullshit. And you you laid all this out in a letter to Cindy McCain, very similar to what you wrote recently, basically telling, I mean, I read that letter, Steve, as a, I'm going to go public with all of this unless you tell Megan to stop. Yeah. Was that the gist? What I, what I said in the letter um, was that I will tell this story publicly in order to make this stop. If you do not make it stop. But the but this, got, but yeah. the, but this will not endure forever. Um, I will not live the rest of my life being attacked um, by by your daughter, you know, as disloyal and all of these things. Um, and I did not get a courtesy of a response to that letter. Um, the attacks did not stop; they escalated, and I just think it's disgusting. It's despicable behavior. And and let me just say right. and let me just say this. You know, the whole premise of this is this high handedness, right? This arrogance, this entitlement um, that there's some royal title, the princess of Sedona. And I'm some low person from North Plainfield, New Jersey, um, who should be honored to have been immersed in the filth because the last name is McCain. Bullshit. I reject it. And I and I made pretty clear that I wasn't going to carry that for the rest of my life if it didn't stop. I want to ask you about one part of that letter that you mentioned just now. You said that there was no unfinished business between you and Senator McCain before he died. What did you mean by that? You saw him when he was. At I didn't. The end. I didn't. I didn't see him. I talked to him on the phone. I called. I said, "John, Steve Schmidt." Um, you know, a little surprised, and I and I said, "I just wanted to call and tell you that I I wish you well." That. I'm sorry for uh, the reality that that you and I uh, wound up fighting each other, um, you know, as opposed to being friends. And uh, and I love you. And, uh, you know, he said, I love you, too, boy. And uh, I wouldn't have been the Republican nominee if it if it wasn't for you. It was one of the great, great adventures and all that stuff. He said, none of that matters now. He said, none of that matters now. He says, don't you worry about any of that stuff. And, uh, you know, and I said, uh, I said, I love you, John. Goodbye. How long was that before he died? A couple months before I knew I'm familiar with geoblastoma in my family. So, you know, I you look at from, you know, when John had difficulty in the committee hearing um, to the diagnosis and the surgery and the return, I, I had a pretty good sense of, you know, what the timeline would be. So a couple months before he before he died, um, you know, when he was when he was out, but but out of public view. There's one other important episode in your relationship with him, and I'm gonna, and then we'll come back to the to the letter to Cindy. But without getting into the um, drama over the Sarah Palin pick, which you have talked about many times as believing was a disaster, 
and that the roots of everything you think is wrong with the Republican Party today can be traced to that moment when Sarah Palin was elevated on the national stage. Um, in the aftermath of the, McC the, of the McCain campaign, you were very public, obviously, in your criticism of her. It's one of the reasons you and, and it's one of the reasons Megan attacked you. And you had a conversation with McCain about that, though, that um, you wrote about and that really sort of um, seems to have had a big effect on, on how you reevaluated him. Can you tell us about that? Um, in the movie Game Change, there's a scene that is that is just, to me, an out-of-body experience. It's almost exactly like it happened, which is where I tell Palin she's not speaking on election night. She comes back out, makes another run at it with McCain, and, and that scene with Ed Harris in the movie is, is, is absolutely spot on. And so McCain does a speech, the speech that Mark Salter wrote. It's a beautiful speech. Um, I am flying out of Phoenix at one in the morning en route to uh, Yost Van Dyke in the British Virgin Islands, where I'm going by myself for a week, and then I'm going to meet my wife and kids a week later um, by myself. And so um, that night, um, about about right as, as Obama is speaking, McCain has left. I got a call from the deputy campaign manager, Carla Udi, um, who says, um, Palin is leaving her, her cabana. She's going to go deliver her speech um, with her detail and, every, and everything else. And the president-elect was speaking. Um, and my last command to the McCain campaign, I said, well, I said, are there lights out there? And she said, yeah. I said, then pull the plug on the fucking generator. And that's exactly what happened um, as uh, as Sarah Palin was trying to get up on those stairs to give her last speech. And that was my last interaction. And so I check in with Nicole Wallace and and Nicole is breaking up. And after a couple minutes, I'm like, wait, what? We're, we're being blamed as the leakers. Right. Us. We're the source of the instability and the insanity. And so this insanity takes off that now I completely understand, but it was disorienting. The reaction on the right after the election isn't that Sarah Palin's an idiot and that, she's, that this is a reckless choice. It's that Sarah Palin's a victim and we're the victimizers. And, right, it's this notion that but for the incompetence of us, right, this genius would have flown like an eagle and united the country. And it was it – was, conservatives rallying around yeah, this person well, because it was thought that you guys, the, the, cons the inside the beltway consultants, the evil inside the beltway consultants were leaking and attacking her and in a conspiracy with the yeah, media. I mean, it was just, it, 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 it was just, it was just crazy. And so, so this builds and escalates where, and I, and I called up because I had gotten Nicole into this and, you know, I, in March, right, you brought, you brought right. her into the campaign. And Nicole had nothing to do with the Nicole Wallace had as much to do with the selection of Sarah Palin or any of this stuff as Barack Obama did. did zero <laughs> involvement. I I said to Nicole Wallace in March, um, and I worked for Nicole. I, I mean, Nicole and I've been friends going back to California. I worked for Nicole in the Bush campaign in the White House. Um and I was like, please, you got it, you gotta do this. Right, please. You know, in March, and I dra I dragged her into this disaster too, um, and you know, and Nicole very famously got to the to the end, and this was in game change. She said, "There's no way I can vote for John McCain," um, and you know that 
you know, that was well earned. Nicole didn't. You know, she had, she had, she had, you know, just nothing to do with it. You know, any of this, any of this stuff. All right. So back to this question though, Steve, of the conversation you had with, with Senator McCain after the election, when you, you were, when you were in some, uh, some public back and forth with Sarah Palin. Yeah. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't. So let me get pa- Palin lashed out at you and, and Nicole. So she was she was lashing out. We were being attacked. And, you know, so sometime in December of 08, I called McCain and I said, you got to make this stop. This isn't right. You got to call and tell her to knock this shit off. It's not true. We're not leaking. We're not attacking her. Come on. And he just said, "Nah, nah, boy, because I can't do it. If I do it, she'll attack me. You wrote, Steve, you said, the bravest man that I'd ever met turned out to be terrified of the creature that he had created. Absolutely. Almost simultaneous to this, you have a lawsuit filed against the New York Times. And this was the last conversation I had with Rick Davis. Um, I picked up the phone and I, and I said to Rick Davis, I said, I saw that this lawsuit has been filed. And, and this is a direct quote. I said, there is zero fucking chance, zero fucking chance uh, that I will lie under oath for John McCain about this. Fucking zero. The lawsuit was filed in December of 2008. It was settled or dropped in February. And I didn't see Davis then for 10 years. Um, And by the time we get, you know, to the publication of the Game Change book and and all of these things... You know, I did everything I could to fiercely protect, you know, McCain's reputation and the family's how did reputation. It, how did this chapter, how did it, how did this chapter not appear in Game Change or um, even hinted at, if I rem- remember correctly, in the, in the movie? Um, or why? Well, I, I think because of my cooperation, right? I, look, at the end of the day, I would discuss none of this and... And let me just get something right about the chronology, right, that, that matters. Yeah. Um, so this conversation happens in December. The first, the first thing I ever say about Sarah Palin publicly is in May of 2009. And it's in response to a question that John King asked me um, from CNN. And he asked what my view of what it would mean if she was the nominee in 2012. And I just said it, it would be catastrophic. I had one word, catastrophic. And McCain called me. He was seething. Um, enraged. And, um, you know, you keep talking about her, you won't stop, let it, let it go. And I just told him, I said, I will not. And, and I, and I just realized this as I'm talking to you. And I didn't see him for years again until I saw him on an Acela. So I saw both Davis and, and, and McCain many years later, both of them on an Acela for the first time. And that was an ice cold conversation. You talked to them in that meeting? On the Acela? Yeah, on the Acela. You know, what happened? Yeah, you know, I saw him. It's the senator, Steve, you know. And, you know, John had this ice cold, you know, kind of try to intimidate you stuff. And I just kind of looked at him and laughed, right? You know, like, I, I just, I wasn't going for the shtick. It, it didn't work on me. So but, by, so, but by that point, mostly because of the fallout about Palin, the two of you were in that kind of place where if you see each other in public, it's like... He's just kind of giving you a fuck you glance and that's it. Yeah. And, and over at MSNBC, you know, it's it, you go up to Morning Joe, you know, MSNBC. Right. right you know, it's like 
It just, it's, you know, when you go to, it has a good vibe. The green room is like everyone's there together. Right. Every, and it has a really good vibe, right? The culture from the security guards downstairs, right? To the pages, like, it's just mellow. Like you go, you know, you go, you check in, everyone's really nice. And, um, you know, so there's this day I go check in and it's like, I'm intercepted. Right. And it's, you know, this, this young lady's just like panicked. And like, what's going on? And I'm, I always go like my certain route, right? So I come through the door, I break to the right. That's where the makeup room is. And there, you got to go to the left. What the fuck the fuck's going on? And it's like, oh, it's McCain is here. And McCain is given an order that we're to be here. He must, I must be kept out of his sight. And, um, and we, we lock eyes, right? You know, I see him across the hall. And, and I did not look away. Like, I, I would not let him shame me. Right in that in that moment, I looked at him dead on until he looked away, right and and walked off. And that may sound stupid, um, but between us, that wasn't stupid. Uh, that meant something. And um, you know, you think I, he respected that? In other words, you think he respected your? I don't know. That- I don't know if he respected it or not. I mean, he if he thought he was right, and there's a you know almost a ninety five percent chance that he did. Um, you know. Um, you know, it was delusional. You weren't going to be intimidated by him. Absolutely after not. All, all. Absolutely, absolutely not. And it was, it was looking at him. I, I, I don't think I've ever looked at anyone with so much contempt, to be honest with you. I said that just the fucking arrogance that, that he thinks that, like, I owe him something, right? I was a volunteer, um, that I was loyal, um, that I carried that secret even in that moment. Um, that I was being abused by his daughter, even in that moment, um, that I was being abused by his apparatus, even in that moment, right, as some disloyal leaker, right, who had betrayed the cause, who had picked Sarah Palin, and it was all bullshit. But what, what, you, call the, what you call the myth of McCain, I, I'm just trying to get at your own personal... Yeah. The myth of McCain is the noble core. It's the redemptive myth, right? And all myths are in part true. There was a King Arthur. Did he pull the sword from the rock? I don't know. Um, the McCain myth is one of redemption, right? Great achievements, great failures, great learnings, great redemption. But the constant in McCain's life is recclessness through the detachment and these both things are true and so everything that we're talking about today is being revisited not revealed because this has been known by many people for a very long time but in this moment it takes on a new meaning because there's a lot of forces kind of colliding here and just one other thing on this, because I think your your analysis of McCain, and even for people who've read a ton about him, is is eye opening. I think this in the moment quality about him, which you describe so well, is that what is is it your belief that that's what his experience in in Vietnam um, left him with, or, or was that something present, you know, through the through the sort of early pampered years and the recklessness and the, you know, uh, bottom of his class at military school and crashing the planes? Or was it the, 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 the Vietnam, the horrible experience in Vietnam that created this 
you could die, you could go at any moment. So, you know, you know, fuck it, live, live, live for now. Or it's, you know, I, I know you're not a psychiatrist, but I'm just sort of curious if you think that's like the, the big, um, change in him after Vietnam. I, I only think, I only think to me, there was one discernible like thing that I, that I thought was directly linked that I said, this is caused by that. He didn't like to be alone. He liked people around. He liked he liked people's company. We were on a plane, a small plane, and this is there are there are three occasions in my life on a on a plane where I where I have been like is this could be it, <laughs> right? And um, level level of turbulence that I, I just can't. It was unbelievable. People were starting to freak out, and he. Um, is reading his New York Times. He's got the paper up. And um, and I'm sitting there, and I said, I don't want to show any panic whatsoever in front of John McCain. Right? It'll be humiliating, and he's he's going to bust my balls about it for the rest of my life if I do it, right? And and I am, but I'm sweating. And um, then there's, a, there's kind of a, a, a level of turbulence that just takes that level of turbulence to the next level, and people scream. And he, and he puts his paper down and he goes, everybody relax. He goes, I've been in five plane crashes. He goes, I, he goes, I, he goes I'm definitely not going out in a plane crash. And he puts the paper back up <laughs> and everyone settles down. And about 30 seconds later, he puts the paper back down. He goes, or he goes, it could go down. And the story will be John McCain, lone survivor. Right. And, um, you know, that was that was the guy. And, and you're just uh, also on board. <laughs> Everything about him that was big was big. Everything that was heroic was heroic. Everything that was petty was petty. You know, there was no there was no he was not a man of moderation um, at all. Um, there big were, appetites. There were no there were no pastels in there. How did you feel on the night when you uploaded this to medium and, and, and hit publish just, just before midnight and finally sharing this story with the world after all of these years. Um, happy, right. For the first time, like in a long time, unburdened, um, light, you know, there's the, there's the truth. You know, American politics at this level is a dirty business. It's disgusting. Um, and it's broken at a, at a very, very, very high level. And I um, know that. And I have seen it. And it's everywhere. And this is just one story. Listen, the Jack Abramoff of today is known. The uh, Manafort of today is known. He's at cocktail parties tonight around D.C. It's all... Who are you talking about? Well, look, I, the amount of you money... Mean generally or like specifically? No, I, I, look, so let me say it again. It's, my, yeah. my larger point is all this is in plain sight, right? The next, the next Paul Manafort's working, the second the old Paul Manafort, right, gets locked up, right? It's just, it's like the monarchy in England, Right. And so it's it's whack-a-mole that like you, you can't ever stop playing. If there's one um, lesson that you learned from your long history with John McCain that you would like other 
political professionals, voters, people who fall in love with candidates and don't want to see their their blind spots, um, what would it be? I was going to say, don't bring your phone when you're walking your dog. <laughs> um, and at the end of the day, what I was most blind to is that a man I loved and admired um, would, would, would impose on me um, the notion that integrity and loyalty were, in fact, the same thing, because they're not. You know, at the, at the end of the day, John McCain seduced a lot of people. He seduced me. He seduced the National Press Corps. Uh, he seduced uh, America, right? Um, in full view, we're watching another golden age of, of corruption take root. And so um, we got to talk about these things. Steve, thank you very much for doing this. And thanks for all of your time and for unfurling a really incredible story after all these years. Thank you, Ron. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's our show. This episode was produced by Kara Tabor and Brooke Hayes. Adam Allington is our senior producer. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of audio. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Special thanks to our field producer, audio journalist David Weinberg, who braved L.A. traffic to record Steve Schmidt at the Beverly Hilton. You should check out David's podcast, The Superhero Complex. I'm Ryan Lizza. Thanks for listening. <laughs>